today from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, the first eight verses. Gary preached a very fine message from this chapter this morning in the sunrise service. Our Sunday school lesson was a thrilling study from the same chapter. I too would like to preach today on the subject, the open tomb from Luke chapter 24, verses one through eight. It is such a pleasure to see you here on this Lord's day. A lovely crowd, the balcony is filled, the lower level practically filled, and it's a beautiful sight. Tonight you will be blessed and never forget the experience of being in this cantata. I hope you'll be here. Luke chapter 24, verses one through eight. Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came unto the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher and they entered in and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And as they were afraid, they bowed down their faces to the earth. They said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again, and they remembered his words. There are several things about this passage of scripture in Luke chapter 24 that is very striking. It's those things which are closed and those things which are opened. We note the closed things. Their memory of his words was closed. They did not remember his words. They had to be cited to that. They had to be pointed back to what he had said. Remember how he said unto you. In verse 16, we notice that their eyes were closed. As Gary preached this morning, their eyes were holden. They could not see. They were restrained from seeing. Further, we note that the grave had been closed. They had rolled a huge stone to the mouth of the tomb and sealed the tomb and placed a Roman guard there to prevent anyone from tampering with his body. We also notice that their understanding and their hope has been dimmed and closed. But I like to think of the things that Christ opened on this resurrection morning. In verse 6 is a glorious, triumphant statement. He is not here. He is risen. Praise God. Why do you seek the living among the dead? They did not find his body there when they arrived at the tomb. The attempt of man to seal Jesus inside of that tomb was nothing more than an exercise in futility. Vainly they tried to seal the dead and shut the Son of God inside of that tomb of rock 
It, they further had wrapped his body with grave clothes, even if he had come back to life. If he had not really been dead, he was so tightly worn, wound about with grave clothes that he could not have freed himself. His hands were bound, his feet were bound, even a napkin over his face. Some teach that he was not really dead and this whole thing was a farce. Were that the case, even if he had awakened out of a deep sleep, he certainly could not have freed himself from a tomb of rock. He could not have freed himself from those grave clothes. And then they sealed that tomb with this great stone, rolled it into place and placed the guard there. But it was all in vain, for the fact remains, he arose. And the statement can be made, he is not here. He has risen. On that statement hinges. It's the crux of, of the very basis of our belief in Christianity, the fact that he is not in that tomb, that he has risen from the dead. It's interesting to note that there is not a witness of his resurrection. No mortal observer was there at the moment that he was raised from the dead. The guards outside knew nothing of what was going on behind that rock. And when Jesus arose from the dead, there was absolutely nothing to indicate it. It was quiet. And he just disappeared out of that tomb. You say, oh, but pastor, there was an earthquake. Even the rocks were... Yes, but that stone was rolled out of the way by the angels to let the people see in. It was not moved to let Jesus out. He didn't need that stone moved to let him out of that tomb. The grave clothes were still in place. The napkin was simply folded and laid over in one place as though he made an unhurried departure from the tomb. No great uh, speed with which he, with lightning speed, flashed out of the tomb and disappeared. Just very determinedly, very purposefully, came right through those grave clothes, took that napkin, and in a mighty testimony of his resurrection power, laid it neatly over it in a place by itself. And right through the rock, right through the stone, right past those guards, they never knew anything took place. Many of the unbelievers in the world think there's nothing to this Christianity bit. There's nothing to the claims of miracles. They don't know because, friends, they're singing a different tune. They don't know what's taking place around them. But we know the power of God. We know that God is at work among men today. So no mortal eye witnessed his resurrection. There were many witnesses to the fact that he had already arisen from the dead. Many infallible proofs that he did rise from the dead, but that came later at the moment of his resurrection, not an observer. His first greetings are interesting to me, and I find in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 9, the greeting that he gave to the women when he met them, and he said to them, All hail! All hail! This greeting meant rejoice. Isn't it interesting to notice that the first thing that Jesus tells them is equivalent to telling them rejoice. They were coming with sadness. They were coming with broken hearts. They were coming feeling, well, this is our duty to go and anoint his body. They didn't expect to find a living Christ. They were going to anoint a dead body. And so he says, no need to be sad. Rejoice. 
Beloved, I think the Christian church today should have this at the very heart of its worship, that we should rejoice. Rejoice in God thy Savior, that he has brought Jesus back to life again, that he is not dead. All hail. And then when he spoke to the disciples, when he had walked along the Emmaus way with the two, and after he disappeared, they realized we've got to share this with our brothers. And so they raced back to the city of Jerusalem, probably about a seven-mile jogging spree. And they arrived there probably in the upper room. And they said, we want to tell you that he really is alive. What those women said is not just a myth. It's true, he's alive. Suddenly, through the closed doors, without a sound, without a rustle of the wind, Jesus literally appeared in their midst. And he spoke these words to them. Peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. Beloved, in this troubled world that is filled with all kinds of doubt and fear and turmoil and raging about us, are the problems of men that literally it's like a tempest in this world. Jesus speaks, peace be unto you. Peace to the church. Peace to the heart of the believer. Peace to the heart of those who will come to trust him. There are three young men here today who made public their commitment to Jesus Christ in the sunrise service this morning. They've been praying and looking to the Lord and last Sunday night, in the living Lord's Supper, when I said those of you in the balcony or on the lower level, when you, if God is dealing with you, get out and come to this altar. They felt that they should come. And one said, well, if you'd have gone, I would have followed. But they did not respond. They were new here and didn't know whether or not that really they should come down to, the, to our altar. But this morning, they walked out of that crowd and stood at the front to make public their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand, fellas. Praise God. Give the Lord a hand clap offering. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Yes, Jesus still speaks peace to troubled youth that has been looking for the answer and traveling around trying to find peace. And they found the Prince of Peace. Peace be unto you. Jesus arose from the dead. Without a doubt, it's the most important and proven fact of all of history. He arose because his life could not be locked in death. He arose because the grave could not hold him. He arose because he had an appointment with God. He arose because he told his disciples that he would. He arose because he had a purpose to fulfill. He had a task to perform. He had a church to build. He arose because he had a comforter to send unto men. He arose because he had life to impart unto men. He arose because he had light, the only light of men in a world of darkness, and because he has healing for the sick, and because he has the answers to life's questions. He arose because he loved with a deathless love. He arose because he has some mansions to prepare for those who would come to trust him. He arose to bring redemption, to be the unshakable rock of the foundation of the church, to be the head of the church, to preside over the altar, to wash men's sins away. He arose to rule in a pure heart. 
He arose to walk again with men, to call again and again and again, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He arose to inspire men to be righteous. He arose to help carry burdens, heavy burdens. He arose to show the way out of the grave, arose to speak to the heart of men, arose to condemn sin and evil, arose to inspire preachers and empower sermons. He arose to be a king, forever a king. He lives, he lives, forever he lives. This is the greatest day of the church. It should be on the headlines of the newspaper. It should be the, on prime news. It's the reality for hope and hope for today and tomorrow and forever. There are many infallible proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The stone being rolled away proves that that tomb was empty. The empty tomb today shouts out a message. He is not here. He is risen. Those grave clothes are infallible proof that his body was resurrected. The angels brought the message. They said, he's not here. He is risen just like he told you. And then Mary saw him. She knew him. At first, when she glanced, she thought it was the gardener. When he spoke her name, she turned and looked and said, Rabbi. Yes, that's another infallible proof. The two on the way to Emmaus that we studied about this morning and that we find recorded, written here in Luke chapter 24. The women saw him. The eleven saw him. Thomas touched him. Paul saw him as one born out of due season. Even after he had gone back to heaven, he had a vision of Christ. Five hundred men saw him at one time. Stephen, when stones were falling upon him and life was ebbing from his body, he looked up and saw the heavens open and the Son of God standing at the right hand of the Father. John on the Isle of Patmos saw him standing in the midst of the seven candlesticks. Oh, beloved, the coming of the Holy Spirit is another infallible proof that Jesus is alive, that Jesus was, re- was resurrected from the dead and that he lives today. On the day of Pentecost, the question was asked, what meaneth this? What meaneth this? I'll tell you what it means. It means that the one who disappeared from the Mount of Olives, when clouds received him up out of their sight, and two angels said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go. It proves to us that he arrived at his destination, that he did not get lost in outer space, that when he left this earth and clouds received him out of sight, that he didn't go into orbit around the moon or around the sun or spin out into space somewhere and finally become wasted. Oh no, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost proves that he arrived back at the right hand of the Father and hath shed forth this which ye do now see and hear and experience. Praise God. It further proves that he has accomplished what he said he would do. He would provide the forgiveness of sin. It proves that he entered into the holiest of holies to accomplish his high priestly ministry, to take his own blood 
and sprinkle it above the mercy seat before God the Father to make an atonement for our sins, to purchase and provide pardon and forgiveness and redemption for man. There's a line in Acts chapter 2 that says, This Jesus hath God raised up. Which Jesus has God raised up? Any Jesus? Other men have been named Jesus. Many have been named Jesus down through the course of history. But the apostle said, This Jesus hath God raised up. In verse 22, he described which Jesus he was talking about. Acts chapter 2. A man approved of God with signs and wonders and miracles. Yes, Jesus was a man approved of God. On the day of his baptism, when John the Baptist stood at Jordan and crowds gathered from all parts of Judea and came to his baptism, when Jesus arrived there and he baptized him and a dove descended from heaven, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, God then spoke with an audible voice out of the skies and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This Jesus hath God raised up. Which Jesus? A man approved of God. A man that God with an audible voice at his baptism said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And again, on the day of his transfiguration, before Peter, James, and John, when Moses and Elijah came back from the other world, and before them his countenance was altered, and his raiment became white and glistening, and a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the Jesus that God hath raised up. In verse 23 of Acts chapter 2, he further tells us which Jesus it is. It's the Jesus whom ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And then in verse 36, this same Jesus whom ye have crucified. Yes, there's no question which Jesus it was that was resurrected. There's no question it's the man that by wicked hands they had taken and slain, which they had crucified, and now God hath raised him up from the dead. In verse 23, it's the same Jesus who was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Yes, God willed it. Calvary was not an accident. It was not an afterthought. It was not an emergency plan. It was not a contingency plan. It was something before the foundation of the world that God decreed that His Son would be the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. And by the determinate counsel of God, by God's foreknowledge, God determined that he would be the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. That's the Jesus God raised from the dead. This Jesus hath God raised up from the dead. Which Jesus? Yes, it was the Jesus that God had approved by his audible voice. It's the Jesus that had wrought signs and wonders and miracles. It's the same Jesus that had been delivered and crucified. Yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but might have everlasting life. In verse 32, this Jesus hath God raised up. What happened in that garden that day? Quietly even without the guards knowing what took place, before the women arrived at the tomb, 
while people were probably still asleep in the dark hours of the night. It may have been shortly after midnight on Saturday evening and early Sunday morning that he came out of that tomb and was busy accomplishing his high priestly ministry of sprinkling his blood before the mercy seat in the throne of God. In verse 24, the Bible says, God hath loosed the pains of death, for it was not possible that he should be holden of it. That's in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. It was not possible that he would stay in that tomb, seal it with a stone, place the guards there, wrap him with the grave clothes, let everybody mourn, but that changes no fact whatsoever. It was not possible that death could hold him. It was not possible that he could stay in that tomb. God had decreed that he must rise from the dead. Jesus had clearly enunciated this when he said the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and he must rise on the third day. That word must is such a divine imperative. It carries the same connotation of shall. It carries the same connotation that other powerful words of action that means there's no other alternative. It must be that way. If you tell your child, Johnny, you must go to the store. You don't mean if he feels like it. You don't mean maybe so. You mean go to the store. The Son of Man must be crucified. There was no other way. Jesus had to die. It was... He was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. But the Bible said it was not possible that the grave could hold him. Because in that same statement, when he said the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, on the third day he must rise again. Hallelujah! The divine imperative, God's divine decree shook the foundations of hell. And all of the demons and the devil himself stood back, aghast at what was taking place. We never counted on this, they said. We thought we had this man dead. What's this taking place? Well, the gates of hell are moving from their post. And he grabbed the keys from the devil himself. And he's leading a procession out of here. What's happening here? Yes, he must rise from the dead. And he came out of the grave. And he led captivity captive and he ascended back to God and moved paradise up to where God is and gave gifts unto men. The resurrection was inevitable. Nothing in all of human history was more certain to take place. It was not because the disciples dreamed it up. It was not because someone figured this is a way to explain our religion now. We've got to find some answer to our dashed hopes no, they even refused to believe. Thomas said, I won't believe until I put my hand in his side and feel those nail prints. And Jesus said, Thomas, reach hither thy hand. Thrust it into my side. Feel these nail prints. Blessed are those who have not seen, but they believe. But Thomas, I want you to know that I'm alive. This is one of the infallible proofs that the world can never gainsay. This is something that the doubting disciple will go out and preach. And it is, we're told by tradition that Thomas later became a martyr and preached the gospel in India and carried the tidings of the resurrection as long as he could breathe. Yes, it was divine decree that he come out of that tomb. 
God had sworn by an oath that he would raise up seed to David. And that's in verse 30 of Acts chapter 2. God had sworn, he had made a covenant. God had declared that he would raise up seed. Now that seed had been dead. That seed had been crucified. The end of the lineage of David appeared imminently certain in the natural. Oh, never. Because divine decree said, God hath raised up seed. He had sworn by an oath and he would never go back on his word. And so Jesus shook off the shackles of death and hell and the grave and rose triumphantly and ascended back to God where he is presently seated at the right hand. Verse 33 says, He is by the right hand of God exalted. By the right hand of God exalted. That's the Jesus that was raised from the dead. He's the Jesus that God raised up. He's the Jesus that God approved of with an audible voice. He's a Jesus that worked miracles. He's a Jesus they dragged out and crucified. But on the third day, he rose again. He's a Christ that was approved, that was raised, that is now exalted by the right hand of God. And verse 36 says, he is that Jesus that is made Lord and Christ. He is made Lord and Christ. We were singing earlier this morning. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. I am he that liveth and was dead. And then we sang the chorus. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead. And he is Lord. No wonder. Because the Bible says he is that Jesus who is by the right hand of God exalted. And the Lord hath made him Christ. And by God he has made Lord and Christ. Beloved, it's wonderful this morning that we are privileged to sit here in a celebration of the resurrection and thank God for such an event. In chapter 24 of Luke, there are a number of things that Jesus opened. In verse 2, he opened the tomb. In verse 8, he opened their memory. In verse 6 and in verse 8, they were made to remember. To this point, they could not remember. He opened their memory. The Bible tells us the Holy Ghost will bring to our memory. Then in verse 31, he opened their eyes. Earlier, we read where their eyes had been holden. As Gary said, they had been restrained. They had been closed. But now then, the Bible says, their eyes are opened. They knew him. The purpose of their open eyes was that they might know him. Not just look in an empty tomb. I've been in that tomb, or supposedly that's what they claim is the tomb. There are several places that are used for tourists to observe. Places of crucifixion and places of resurrection. You can take your pick. The important thing about all of them is he's not in any of them. Praise God. <laughs> they knew him. That's the important thing. When God opens our eyes, it won't be to determine whether it's Gordon's tomb or, or another place. But it will be that we will know him and the power of his resurrection. God wants to open our eyes on this Easter Sunday that we may know him. In verse 32, he opened to them the scriptures. To this point, they could memorize, they could rehearse, they could recite, they could pass, make a passing grade if you tested them on the scriptures. Most Jews prided themselves in their knowledge of the book. But now then, 
He opened the scriptures to them. And it's a different thing when you just read these pages and see black ink on white paper. But it's another thing when Jesus opens these scriptures to you and quickens them to your heart. Furthermore, in verse 45, the Bible says, He opened their understanding. He opened their understanding. How could this be? The miracle of the the open tomb, the stone rolled away, angels sitting there waiting to advise the women of what had taken place. That same miracle power of God is in this building this morning to open to you scriptures that will make Christ real to you and open your understanding that you can experience, that you can rejoice, that you can fellowship and have communion with that living Christ and it not be merely a piece of theology, merely a fact of history, but that it will be experiential knowledge, something that has been transmitted into your heart and being by the Holy Ghost. He will open the scriptures to you. He will open your understanding and your eyes will behold.